We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Ducks Dish Podcast. Welcome in to our special Friday Flock Talk edition. Uh, we are live on youtube.com slash Oregon Football Max Torres. In case you guys are new here, I'm your host, Max Torres, publisher and lead editor of Ducks Digest, covering the Oregon Ducks for Sports Illustrated on Fan Nation. Joining me on the podcast today is my main man, Dylan Rubin King. He's a reporter for us at Ducks Digest and just uh, does a lot of different stuff for us. But excited to hop into this episode of the pod because uh, we're kind of uh, using one of his stories to uh, you know, get us introduced into a really overarching question for Oregon football, talking about the transformation of Oregon football over the years um, and kind of where it's been and where it's headed under new head coach Dan Lanning. Joining me on the show, as I just said, is Dylan Rubin King. Rube, how we doing, man? I'm doing good. Getting flashbacks to being on that AM show. It was like almost the exact same intro. Um, yeah, I appreciate the idea for the story. That was all you. I'll give you credit for that. But, uh, you know, I'm glad we can kind of talk about it a little bit more because, like you said, it's a huge rainbow of kind of little bits and pieces that we can talk about. So, you know, I know we have a lot of Oregon fans that have been fans throughout the decades. So it should be a fun one. It's definitely a really cool topic, and it's something that's hard to boil down in just one episode, one live stream. So I'm sure we'll kind of, you know, hit on it repeatedly and, and kind of try to track it as we learn more about the Dan Lanning version of the Oregon Ducks. If you guys are live here, if you guys are watching live on the YouTube channel, thank you for joining us today. Definitely take a second and, and go ahead and hop in the live chat comments section. Uh, we want to know where your guys' head's at. And uh, we want to answer any questions that you guys maybe want to toss our way about uh, Oregon football, anything Oregon related. So just wanted to make sure to put that out there. But um, yeah, Dylan, where do you kind of want to start this? Because I feel like, you know, you wrote the story, even though we were brainstorming the idea together. Um, I do want to put one thing out there that I hate to say because I cover the team, but I really didn't start following the Ducks until 2012. I went to my first football game against Cal at Autzen Stadium in 2007. Uh, the Ducks lost in glorious fashion, fumbling the ball out of the end zone. Um, but uh, I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there because I really liked that about your story. It kind of painted the whole picture, and it really seemed like Oregon started to push into a you know big relevance in uh, kind of the mid mid to late 1990s. So um, kind of just wanted to toss it to you and use your story as a, a jumping point. Where do you want to start this off? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to claim that I'm necessarily a historian more so than others. I mean, obviously, we're both young, so we weren't around for 
you know, like the Rich Brooks days or for, you know, the early years of the Mike Bellotti days. But uh, I think that one place I really want to start is just kind of the birth of the popular Oregon football. Because you think about like 94 was the pick in the Rose Bowl year. Obviously, they didn't win the Rose Bowl. But, you know, Rich Brooks' last year, everything just kind of sort of came together. And then he went to the NFL. It seemed like there were a couple of years where there was just kind of this drop off. And then, you know, you bring in Joey Harrington, Mike Bellotti has got a couple years under his belt. And then you got the Heisman billboard, you got the, you know, the Cotton Bowl, then the, um, you know, they're inches away from the, the BCS. So that's kind of where I want to start. It's just, it feels like that era was when Oregon football, the modern Oregon football with, you know, Nike and Phil Knight and, you know, the Oregon O, I feel like that's when it all kind of kicked off. And I feel like the success that the programs had in the last 15 years or so is really thanks to that era, in my opinion. Yeah, I really like the 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 Kenny Wheaton's the pick moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's one of the, the, you know, Oregon moments that I think sticks with me the most. Um, like you said, not like I was there to watch it. I wasn't even alive yet, um, <laughs> like you as well. But, um, you know, that's like that clip I think is played at every Oregon home game, I want to say, yep. um, or it's played very frequently. Um, and, you know, I, it's so cool how they use the Nike brand and the, you know, design and creativity with, uh, you know, the uniforms that they have. You know, you think about the the retro uniforms that they had, the, the commemorative pick uniforms that they last wore against Washington in 2014, a game that they won, I believe, 45 to 20. I was at that game here in Eugene. Um, that, but that's like just an, another example that is like a huge part of the conversation, like the way that Oregon can use the Nike brand and the design and creativity to keep historical moments like that alive, um, you know, to this day. I think that's a, a really cool part of the conversation. And, and maybe I'm tacking too much on to one point here, but I think, um, I think some people, you know, when they're trash talking Oregon, they talk about, oh, the Oregon O is representative of how many championships they have in football, a million uniform combinations, but no national championships. If you guys are an Oregon fan and you've been following this team for a while, you know, that's not the first time you've heard it. You've heard it before. Um, But if I'm Oregon and I have that Nike connection, why would I not leverage that? Why would I not utilize that? And and we're seeing them do that um, with, with how they're marketing Oregon athletics today. Yeah, I think Nike is, you know, obviously Phil Knight and his, uh, you know, his family and his foundation, they've donated an unbelievable amount of money towards athletics and uh, the university as a whole. I mean, there's so many things on campus that are named after him and his family, which is is super cool. So I think Nike, you, you talk to a lot of recruits that come to Oregon and they visit Oregon. And that's one of the things that they mention is the uniforms, you know, they grew up watching it with you know, all the, the glitz and the glam as you, I remember you put it in the flash and Nike and just having that connection. And now with the NIL, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit as well, you know, it's just, it takes on more of this um, bigger role, I think more tangible role with, you know, Nike and that connection to Oregon football that, you know, these kids can be sponsored by Nike and actually work directly with them. Um, and it's in their backyard. So, I kind of said that with a Wisconsin accent in their backyard. Um, but I really, I really think that Nike is like, you know, one big thing that helps the Oregon football program kind of take off, you know, it take off early in the two thousands, late nineties. Um, and, you know, with the Joey Harrington banner and, in, in you know, near Madison square garden, I think that's one thing that put Oregon on the map. I think when I, I put it um, in my story, I think I said that 
the Rich Brooks era, the Mike Bellotti, Joey Harrington era, those days, those years, you know, kind of put Oregon football on the map. And for a while, even like 2000, 2001, I think they were kind of, as I put it, a Cinderella for a lot of the college football world, just because they were pretty new to that national stage being up there in the top, you know, three in the country in Miami and Nebraska, those, those guys were up there too for, for a while. So um, I feel like a lot of the country was really rooting for Oregon because, you know, the country loves an underdog. Yeah. And, and, and I, I part, I feel like part of the transformation is that Oregon isn't the underdog anymore, right? You know, over the past five, 10 years, uh, they, they've really been viewed as the, the alpha of the Pac-12 conference. You know, when I started college in 2016 at Gonzaga, I was, you know, I made sure to set a time, set aside time on Saturdays to, to watch the ducks. Um, but in 2016, they went four and eight and they were very much not the alpha dogs of the, the Pac-12 conference. But now where we stand today, they are the, they are viewed. I feel like even after losing to Utah as the, the premier brand in, in uh, the Pac-12 um, and brand doesn't always mean team but it's kind of an interesting relationship. And, and I think that with the roster that, that Mario Cristobal helped assemble and, and the way that Lanning's position to keep stockpiling elite talent, I think that they're in a great position to, to stay there, but you also have USC looking to fight back to, you know, it's glory days, which is something the Pac-12 needs. And I think college football needs. Um, and I don't remember where I was quite going with that point, to be totally honest. Um, I kind of just had a brain fart moment. <laughs> Um, but there was one thing that I wanted to talk about that you said earlier with, you know, the recruits talking about, um, about growing up, watching the ducks, watching guys like the Anthony Thomas and, and Marcus Mariota. Um, I think that while it's great to hear that, I, I feel like it's, it's kind of a piece of Oregon history that's fading a little bit, just in terms of, you know, how much you can really draw from it. Like, that's great and everything, but, you know, what kind of offense and defensive stars has Oregon had recently, right? You know, that's why I think that how Kayvon Thibodeau does is going to be super, um, you know, impactful for Oregon to recruit another guy of his caliber. Uh, Panay Sewell had a great year with the Lions, even though they obviously weren't, you know, like a playoff team. And Justin Herbert's making a name for himself as one of the premier players in the NFL now. So having those guys is awesome, but you just need to have more and more draft picks every year and, and high-end guys because it's time now at Oregon. Uh, another thing that we've talked about, like it's time for people to be saying, oh yeah, I, I want to be the next Seven McGee, the next Byron Carwell, um, the next Troy Franklin, the next Noah Sewell, like things like that. I feel like it's time for, for Oregon to, not, not that you don't want to claim that part of history because D'Anthony and Marcus were phenomenal players, great human beings, um, and Lanning's made it apparent that he wants to keep those alumni around the program but it's it's time to to really you know get get more elite players that can can make some noise and and have an impact at the college and NFL level. Yeah, those guys were absolute trendsetters. I mean, you and I kind of got into the Oregon football landscape around the same time. I mean, Mariota was a freshman when I think you and I were both first getting into it, um, kind of full time. And DeAnthony Thomas obviously was a huge part of those early 2010 years and. There just was nobody like Oregon in the early 2000s, uh, 2010s, rather, with, you know, the up-tempo offense, you know, just the, the offenses that would just run you out of the stadium, um, put up 50 a game, just the fastest guys you've seen in a football field. Like, that team was just special. Those 2011, 2012, really through 2014, through the, the Mariota, um, you know, the national championship year, 
that was just an, the most special era, I think, of Oregon football was from Chip Kelly's tenure through, um, you know, Mariota's end of his career. And so, yeah, I think it is kind of fading. I mean, I was in, where was I? I think a sophomore in high school when Mariota was a, a Heisman. So it's it's been a bit. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, they've had some star potential, obviously. Justin Herbert, you mentioned Penny Sewell, Kayvon. It just doesn't really feel like, you know, and, and not to not fault of their own, but I definitely think that the product for the Oregon football team with those guys, it just didn't deliver with, you know, the promise on the talent that they had. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit with Mario Cristobal and that coaching staff and, you know, that sort of thing. But I felt like throughout that era, though, that there was always just one game that Oregon was away from that, you know, there was just one game away from being in that national spotlight. Like you think of 2012, the Stanford game, 2013, Arizona, um, you know, 2014, Arizona. Like it just always felt like there was one game where if they won this, Oregon would be, you know, national championship contenders or in the championship game. I mean, you think about 2001, I believe that that was also a loss to Stanford um, where they had the one loss and then got gypped out of the BCS um, for Nebraska, who wasn't even a division champion in their own conference. Um, that was the closest they had gotten to the BCS title game at the time. And then 2011, they go undefeated. And then Michael Dyer was down, but they didn't call that. Um, and so, you know, they're 0-2 in national championship games, and it didn't really feel like they were super close to getting there, I would say, until last year after beating Ohio State and then just the injuries and, you know, some coaching weirdness, if you will, and um, you know, it just didn't feel like Oregon was was ready to hit that level yet in the Cristobal era. And I feel like with Dan Lanning and the coaching staff and the recruiting capability, I feel like in the next couple of years, they're going to be back to, you know, the 2011 to 2014 years where they're, you know, right there in the thick of things. Let's stay on Chip Kelly for a little bit. I want to I want to reminisce about that a little bit because it, it was just so I think it was something that I didn't really appreciate at the time. Because obviously, I think I've you and I have both learned a lot about football, obviously, since Chip Kelly was at Oregon. One of the games that I remember going to was in 2013, very vividly against uh, Washington State when the Ducks had the pink uniforms, mm-hmm. pink helmets. Uh, Marcus just had a crazy game. Um, I want to say they scored 48 points. I remember I was like really hoping that they were going to crack 50 that game. But I think just watching what Chip Kelly did for Oregon and and seeing him revolutionize college football the way that he did uh, with the hurry up offense, with the blur offense, all the explosion, you know, it felt like Oregon would score 50 points every game. It's, it, it was really cool just to see a coach do that. And the fact that it was happening at Oregon. And that's a time where I feel like they really latched on with the Nike brand and, you know, win the day that slogan was going on. And um, I think it was like fast, hard finish was another, you know, piece of the uh you know the organ image with football um Mm. and i I just feel like now we're kind of contrasting it i feel like you know college football has has definitely caught up to that um so it's like organs kind of being looked to to innovate again um with you know a really strong roster and you know they're in a great spot to capitalize yeah, I think you made a really good point about kind of underappreciating what Chip Kelly did. And obviously we were both, you know, young when when he was tearing up the the country in, in the Pac-12. Um, just to confirm, in that game, you said 2013 against Washington mm-hmm. State? 
Yep. That final was a uh, 62 to 38. So okay. I believe you're thinking of uh, maybe a different one. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you kind of don't really understand how different a team is when you're really watching them. Um, like, for example, I remember when I was growing up as a Packers fan and I didn't realize that Aaron Rodgers and even Charles Woodson, like those guys were on a different level because I was just watching them every weekend. And then you kind of watch other teams and you just assume everybody is kind of in the same realm and doing the same thing, but they're totally not. And Oregon's offense was absolutely kind of the iteration of that where their offense was just different. And now you watch it and there's so many teams that still do this up-tempo, um, you know, spread you out kind of offense. It's almost a norm now. Um, and you can really thank Chip Kelly for that. Not that he was the originator of it, but I think he was really the one that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess kind of put it on the map in a sense, just on a national spectrum. And you just don't really find a team from head to toe, especially on offense that had the speed that Oregon had. And I feel like this roster specifically, you're starting to get a little bit of that sense of they're getting that speed back. We might see some of those, you know, the 2011, 2014 teams um, and even the ones in between. I think 2012 was one of the fastest teams I've ever seen with D'Anthony Thomas, Kenyon Barner, Josh Huff, those guys, um, and Mariota as a freshman. Can't forget him. I just think that this roster is as close with that athleticism and that speed as we've seen since those days. And if they keep talking about, you know, landing in Dillingham with this explosive offense that we're going to see, then I, I really hope they utilize those guys that have that track speed that, that Dan Lanning was talking about and on defense too. We, we talked about that a little bit in one of our last stories that they've got a bunch of dudes in the secondary that can run track and Devin Jackson, who's a linebacker that, can run track it just this is one of those rosters that you think is you know they have a lot of intangibles a lot of speed a lot of um, instincts that you really just can't teach a lot of athleticism too and I feel like that's kind of what made those teams back in the past in the last 10 years really special is they just had those instincts that that athleticism that speed that made Oregon football fun and exciting but also successful and I, I feel like Oregon to be successful with this new coaching staff and this roster, I think they should definitely get back to that. Yeah, I, I definitely want to circle back to that point once we get to talking about landing a little bit more and kind of where Oregon stands now. Um, but I like your point about how it's just kind of, or maybe this wasn't your, you were talking about the speed uh, coming back to Oregon. Um, we know that there's definitely a lot of capable playmakers on offense, but a lot of that speed's coming on defense, which is super interesting to, to look at. And I know landing, when I asked him about that, he was saying, you know, speed's something that, doesn't change. And then the same thing goes for the size that, that the Ducks have on this roster. But um, I kind of wanted to, I mean, I feel like we didn't really even talk about the Chip Kelly era a ton. Um, I probably would have, would have needed a little bit more research for that. So I kind of just, you know, talked about what I was able to see um, when I was watching it in high school. Um, Cause I was 2012 to 2016, but um, I want to talk about the Mario Cristobal era um, I know a lot of people don't like talking about Mario because of the way that he left and the fact that he's in Miami now, but I think there is a ton that we can learn from the Mario Cristobal era at Oregon because he showed that there's a blueprint for success and kind of, I think the more modern college football landscape, uh, that blueprint and landing's in a great position to pick up right where he left off. And it already looks like that's happening, but I think one of the biggest differences not that they coached back-to-back, -back, obviously, but because we're talking about the Chip Kelly era and then now the Mario Cristobal era, one of the biggest differences has to be the recruiting. 
because Chip Kelly had an awesome on-field product, you know, had some four, four-star guys here and there and even made the push for the occasional five-star. But with Mario, that became a regularity. I mean, it, it was kind of just like, okay, they landed at an All-American, who's next? Like, I feel like that's, it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving with recruiting, especially when you're, you know, at a school like Oregon. Like, I'm very fortunate to cover a school like Oregon that does recruit at a high level. Cause I know people that cover other schools that just don't recruit like very well. And it's, man, that, that must just be terrible. But, <laughs> but, but with, but with Cristobal here at Oregon, I think that we saw a fundamental difference in their approach approach for recruiting. And then just a totally different level of athlete that was coming here. You know, Chip Kelly liked to have, you know, not small offensive linemen, but you know, guys that were a lot more nimble agile and you know probably sub 300 and then mario gets here and he's recruiting just these behemoths of linemen uh you know let me look at faope who was i think well above 350 when he was committed to oregon and i think it's just a total it was just a totally different um you know totally different product that we saw from oregon both on the recruiting trail and on the field yeah and i think you know a lot of people kind of slack chip kelly for his recruiting abilities and I definitely think, you know, Cristobal did more on the recruiting trail and that staff did as well. But um, where I really credit Chip Kelly with recruiting is kind of finding those gems. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of those guys that were like three stars, two stars um, were really the bigger stars than even the guys who were four and five stars. D'Anthony Thomas being an exception, obviously. Um, but I, I definitely think that he, he just had a better way of developing whoever he brought in. I think top to bottom, you know, no matter your stars, no matter how long you've been starting. I feel like Chip Kelly did that um, at a consistent rate, um, especially offensive guys. But Cristobal, yeah, that was just a different feel because it felt like it was breaking news whenever, you know, during the Helfrich era, even the Taggart era, dare I say, um, <laughs> that they get a uh, they get a five-star. It's like, whoa, this is this is totally new. Because um, I remember one five-star was Lake Seastrunk. I believe he was a five-star, but he ended up um, decommitting. And so... You know, when he committed, it was like, whoa, they got a five star like that's that doesn't really happen very often. And now you're looking at some of these classes where it's top 15, even top 10, and they're getting multiple five star guys, um, you know, even at the same position. If you look at Noah Sewell and Justin Flo, those guys were both interior linebackers who were both five stars in the same class. Like, that's just crazy. That's like Alabama, Ohio State type of stuff. And so, you know, they they were really able to make that push towards you know, not just being a national brand with the O and the Nike and, you know, the 60 points a game, whatever you want to do, but with recruiting too, and being able to, you know, like Dan Lanning has said, go into anybody's house anywhere in the country and convince a guy to go to Oregon, not just because of, Hey, we got Phil Knight, we got all these flashy uniforms, but you know, we can develop you, take you to the next level. Um, and, you know, went on the field too. And obviously with Mario Cristobal, there were a couple games that, you know, that probably isn't evident like last year with, with Utah and 2019 with Arizona state. But I definitely think that Cristobal needs to be thanked more for his ability to recruit. And I think Dan Lanning needs to be credited for keeping that momentum, at least to start just because it could have been so, so much worse. And I've said that a couple of times, it could have been a lot worse with that recruiting class. Um, Cause we really haven't seen, and I've said this in the story, we really haven't seen a recruiting staff, or a coaching staff from top to bottom that just has this much recruiting prowess and capability and experience. Um, and I, I feel like 
they knew Dan Lanning knew that that had to be the priority because of what Mario Cristobal built specifically. And I think that they've done a phenomenal job. You, you look at like their top 25, I think they were number 25 in 247 sports rankings, which compared to the last, you know, five years or so is, is lower. But you think of where it was when Cristobal left, it was like in the fifties or sixties, if not lower. So it's, it's kind of a miracle that they were able to pull some of the guys that they were at the time they did, you know, right around, the last weekend up until national signing day and, you know, being able to flip guys like Anthony Jones and Jordan James um, and bring guys back from, you know, the NFL draft or the transfer portal, like just everything that they've done so far, I feel like was to keep the momentum that Cristobal and that stuff built on the recruiting trail and in the transfer portal. Keeping that momentum is, is going to be crucial for, for the ducks, right? You know, now that you look like that they're in the 2023 class, one of the things that you said I wanted to, to hit on more was, Chip Kelly was really, really good at effectively getting the most out of his talent. And Mario Cristobal wasn't. I mean, as great as he was at getting the talent here, the it felt like for as great as a recruiter he was, the on-field product just did not, did not match up to that. Maybe the one place it did match up was at the offensive line, which makes sense because that's his, you know, that's that's his child, right? The offensive line, along with him and Mirabal. Um but we saw it, it was interesting when we're talking about the image of Oregon football and kind of the transformation of Oregon football. In 2019, Oregon's most dominant year, um, they just had a lights-out defense, which was kind of weird to see because it feels like they might be going back in that direction now, and that just hasn't necessarily been the identity, at least in our lifetimes, that Oregon's really been known for. Um, so that was kind of kind of interesting to see, but on the topic of, you know, Cristobal and, and recruiting and how all that kind of went, I think it, it showed Oregon and Oregon fans that recruiting can only get you so far and that you you need to be able to, to get the most out of your talent. The point that I was trying to get to there is I think development is a word we hear thrown around all the time. And I feel like it's, it's kind of hard to define sometimes, but development and utilization maybe don't mean the same thing. Um, and it also feels like with Oregon, even when they had Herbert, he wasn't being used properly. I feel like it's kind of a comparison since I'm, I'm wearing my Niners shirt here. It's like, I feel like Oregon and the Niners are similar in that it feels like they're kind of one quarterback away. Um, so getting, I mean, we obviously know how crucial it is to get a quarterback that, that can really perform at a high level, but the development and utilization, I think is, is going to be very interesting to see kind of where that picks up with, with landing um, because, I think with the utilization that we saw under Mario, you know, we always want to look back to Anthony Brown being left in during blowout games, uh, especially down the end of the, uh, the season, that last stretch. Um, but I think that, um, I think that if, if Lanning can kind of take that hands off approach and have that trust in Dillingham and the rest of the offensive staff, then that would be a, a great way for, um, you know, him to get started with, uh, with this new staff and, and heading into 2022 his first year. Yeah. The Cristobal era with the offense specifically was really weird for Oregon fans. I feel just because it was this more physical run it down your throat, just wear you out kind of offense. Um, instead of just, we're going to run all over you and tire you out just from running past you. Um, like the, the trenches were not as much, like you said, we're not as much a priority back with Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich. And Cristobal, it was really just 
you know, CJ Verdell is going to run right up through you and just dominate you, especially 2019. Um, and I just feel like the Justin Herbert era left so much to be desired. Like there was just so much oh, no talent question. that you really wanted to just see. Like, I think that they didn't really, how am I trying to word this? The downfield offense was still kind of more evident than this past year. I think it, it was because you had guys like Johnny Johnson who was being utilized more, Jacob Breland, um, you know, some of those guys that were a little bit more prevalent in the offense. And I just felt like they didn't really have a lot of faith in Justin Herbert, even though he was, he could have been an NFL draft pick, first round pick, you know, after the 2018 season and chose to came back and they still didn't really utilize him the best that they should have. Um, you know, he didn't really put up the the crazy numbers that you really see from from first round quarterbacks, especially with, you know, now that you've seen him play at the professional level, what he's capable of. And so I'm not sure where I was trying to go with that. But I just think that Justin Herbert, like that era, it was just really disappointing. And I, I know that they won a Rose Bowl. They won a Pac-12 championship. I just felt like there should have been more like that year specifically, 2019, because that was the year. I was on campus going to games um, and they were just, I don't know. I just felt like Justin Herbert was not ripping apart defenses like he should have been because they had the talent and there were a lot of drops. I know that that's one thing that needs to be mentioned with that year specifically and years prior, there were a ton of drops, but I just felt like the scheme was not set up for him to succeed and for him to put up kind of Mariota Dennis Dixon level numbers. I guess we could probably put Herbert in the Dennis Dixon conversation, but I just felt like Herbert was capable of being on the same tier of Mariota from that 2014 season. And we just never really saw it. Not to any fault of his own though. Sure. I mean, that's definitely a fair argument after seeing how well he's doing in the NFL. Right. But I think with the 2019 season, it's like, even though as good as the offense was, and I, I mean, it continued for, the next two years after that in 2020 and 21 it's we just didn't see something that was very effective it was always get the job done good not great mm. mediocre at times right um and it, i think that the biggest thing that i'm looking for from for this staff and we saw it even during the alamo bowl i don't even need to see i'm not expecting like crazy explosive numbers you know 30 point blowouts i just want to see them try dylan <laughs> I mean, and, and what I mean by that is I want to see some innovation. I want to mm -hmm. see Kenny Dillingham, like, putting out everything that he's, you know, out, like, back to what we were just saying about um, what we were just saying about um, Kenny Dillingham being allowed to just do his job. Um, I think that we just want to see someone who's able to have complete freedom. We want to see Troy Franklin, Dante Thornton, uh, Chris Hudson, just, um, you know, there's obviously other players I could mention, but we just want to see them utilize to their full ability we don't want to see these stupid screenplays that marcus royal was calling every other drive um you know we don't want to see these dive plays that are just going to get stuffed on third and four um or in critical situations just we want to see them mix it up a little bit and i feel like that is one of the points i'm most passionate about as we head into 2022 and we have our first year of the kenny dillingham offense it, it seems like he he's just talking about all the excitement that the offense can bring. He knows that that's, he knows that that's still something that Oregon is known for, even though it's been an underwhelming offense for a couple of years, he wants to get that tempo back. And, and I think that that's just really encouraging to see. Um, and I, uh, obviously a big part of that piece of the puzzle is going to be what the quarterback room looks like. 
um, which is a whole nother discussion we could talk about with, uh, you know, bringing transfers in or relying on the young guys sometimes. And um, yeah, I don't want to talk about too much in one point. So that, that was what I had to say. Yeah. So I think one point with the Mario Cristobal offense specifically and the Joe Moorhead and the Marcus Arroyo, it was just, to me, it was never anything special. It was never anything that threw offenses off. It was, I wouldn't say stale. I think towards the end of last year, it was definitely stale, but I think through a lot of it, it wasn't really anything special, anything that you'd really have to scheme against. You'd really have to do your film to, to figure out. Like it really seemed like it was kind of straightforward. We're just going to run right down your throat dink and dunk stuff, a couple slants here now and then. Um, and every once in a while, we'll throw it deep. But last year, especially towards the end, and in the Alamo Bowl specifically, I, I think I said this the last three games where I wanted Joe Moorhead to just open it up, just open up the playbook. There's, I'm sure there was so much more that they could have done in those last three games. You know, Oregon State, Pac-12 Championship, Alamo Bowl, that they could have just opened it up because – the Oregon State game, you're coming off of a beatdown where offensively you were just embarrassed. And even then against Oregon State, it felt like there was progress, but still a little bit left to be desired. Utah, they kind of fought back, but not really. And then um, Alamo Bowl, you you saw flashes of what could have been the entire season. And I feel like that chunk, specifically in the second half, because the first half was another embarrassment. But the second half, you really got to see what Oregon's offense with the talent and the, even the scheming could have been. And I feel like next year they're going to have to kind of look at, okay, why did that work? Why did that, you know, why did those guys make the plays that they did? What, you know, how do we get them in positions to make plays like that? So I'm sure that's how Dan Lanning and, you know, his staff are going to be utilizing their, their mirrors, you know, late at night is to draw up plays to, like you said, get those guys opportunities to, you know, do damage because there's a lot of game breakers on this, on the offense um, and on defense now too. And that's another point I wanted to make if you wanted to transition to defense, because I know you brought it up a couple of times and I was kind of glossing over that, not on purpose, but I was just, my brain's. All yeah. Let's, time. let's stay on offense a little bit more. I feel like that's one of the things that kind of happens with these shows. Sometimes is I get so excited. I just start firing <laughs> off these points like all over the place. And then it's like, okay, Max, you just said like 10 things. What am I supposed to do here? So let's stay on offense for a second. Did you have anything else you wanted to add on that last point? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Yeah, I just think that, you know, creativity, innovation, that's what made Oregon, Oregon during the, um, you know, during their heyday. And I'm not saying you have to just steal what Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich did and Scott Frost during those, you know, exciting years. But, you know, pick some, pick your poison. There's there's plenty of stuff to, to take. Um, Kenny Dillingham had some really good stuff from his days at Florida State and Auburn. Um, and I'm really excited to see what some of those position guys can do with Carlos Lachlan and Drew Maringer and Junior Adams and Adrian Clem. I just feel like there's a lot of experience that, you know, I, I just don't want to see the same stale dink and duck kind of stale offense anymore. I want to see, you know, I'm not expecting, like you said, I'm not expecting the 2012 50 points a game, just crazy offensive stuff, but just something that looks more productive, something that looks like Oregon football, something that, you know, you, you don't, you don't really groan every time you, you see any certain player, make a certain play. Like I'm not trying to be too specific or anything, but I just feel like the offense has just been kind of dead in a sense. I mean, like you look at the numbers, they put up 35 points a game, you know, they have some, the, you know, Ohio state, I think was probably one of their cleanest performances. UCLA up until Anthony Brown threw those picks. It was a really good offensive performance. And I just feel like you need more consistency there. And I really hope that, the offensive staff that Oregon has brought in with that Dan and Lanning has brought in. I just hope that they can deliver because Oregon fans have been hungry for some explosion for a few years now. That's one of the things that's so tough about the off season that we find ourselves in is that Oregon fans are going to be, you know, finding themselves latching onto that second half of the Alamo bowl, you know, until mm-hmm. April 23rd until the spring game, or maybe until spring football, like when that gets started up, uh, I would assume late next month, we're still waiting for, um, you know, official dates and all that. But um, quick side note, like that's just one of the cool things about having this platform and just being able to kind of talk about whatever we want is, you know, it's hoop season, but you know, if you're, if you're an Oregon sports fan, you know, that football is, is kind of where it's at. So really fun that we can just kind of have shows like these in, you know, the middle of February. Um, But yeah, as far as the offense goes, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so happy that they didn't hire Chip Kelly you know, not to slight him as a coach at all, because obviously he's a brilliant offensive mind. But if you were to bring in Chip Kelly, you know that he would have had, you know, he would have had final say. I'd probably say it's fair to argue, you know, over the offense. And you're kind of relying on capturing light, lightning in a bottle a second time, which is so tough to do, um, especially when we're seeing how much college football is changing. Um, and I, that's why I feel like I'm encouraged by bringing in a young mind like Kenny Dillingham because. Um, you know, you look at guys like Sean McVay, who's one of the younger NFL coaches. Um, he is really praised for his innovation. Uh, same kind of thing with Kyle Shanahan. 
um, which, you know, we don't have to talk too much about the Niners because that was just <laughs> a, a, a brutal way to end the season um, with Jimmy Garoppolo as the quarterback. Um, but, but yeah, I just feel like Kenny Dillingham and, and the talent that Oregon has on offense, it's just, it's like ripe for the picking. Like this is the time to, to just throw it all out there and just kind of have a, a, a new, a fresh reset of the offense. Um, and I feel like that's part of the reason why this next season is so important to kind of go big picture again. I know you wanted to get to defense and you got to get out of here in a little bit. So I don't, I want to make sure we can hit on that, but to try to smoothly transition into another point um, is just, I feel like that's part of the reason that this next 2022 season is so important because I feel like it's a chance for Oregon to get back to its traditional identity as far as having an explosive and a fun offense. But at the same time, you bring in this brilliant defensive mind with Dan Lanning, most of the talent on the roster, maybe not most, but I think the most talent on the roster is on the defensive side of the ball. And it feels like Oregon is capable of being at least competitive. I think in any game against any opponent, I think we kind of got a glimpse of that against Ohio state last year. Uh, But there's just so much change going on. And it's like first year head coach, try to get back to an explosive offense, but you have all these awesome pieces to the puzzle on defense. It feels like kind of a rebuild, but in a sense of like, they're not necessarily rebuilding from like a place of, um, what's the word? I guess, you know, agony. Like they're not rebuilding from, you know, a terrible season. Like they they almost won the Pac-12. I get, They were in the Pac-12 championship. They didn't really, you know, show up in the Pac-12 championship game. But I mean, they, they were in there and they went to the Alamo Bowl, you know, 10 wins. Um, you know, it was, it's not a bad year to, to go off of, but you're still trying to rebuild this momentum and this, like you said, tradition, I guess. And it just seems like now is the time, but at the same time, like you said, it's a new coaching staff and it's hard to expect, you know, kind of a repeat year, at least last year, you know, 10 wins from a brand new staff. And it's a, it's a tough schedule, especially the non-conference. It's just going to be, you know, I, I feel like people are going to be too quick to make it a disappointment if it's not a 10 win season, given all the change that's happened. But I, I kind of go back and forth in that. I'm not sure if, you know, if you feel any differently because it's a lot of the same talent, um, but they're still trying to figure out the new coaching staff and utilize everybody. Like I, I, I'm trying to figure out what a disappointing season would be with, with everything, um, you know, that's new with the program. That's something we can definitely get into, you know, as the season approaches and we'll talk about that, you know, more preview content and everything, but that's a great point. I mean, it's, I think you feel like you were just on the doorstep of a college football playoff appearance. You know, if you, if you don't get your butt handed to you by Utah and you make some adjustments and you don't keep that stale, um, that stale offense, but it feels like I would kind of put it like this, maybe, I don't think that they're rebuilding from a roster standpoint at all because there is so much talent, but they're, you know, they're, I think they're really close to being that kind of a program that's reloading, not rebuilding, but it almost feels like, I don't know, this might be totally out of left field, but I kind of feel like they're re maybe rebuilding from an identity standpoint. Right. Yeah. Because like what I just, we were just talking about these past couple of minutes, you know, potentially going back to that explosive offense what the Oregon was known for, but still, you know, 
taking this amazing defense for all it's worth. And it's so often that, you know, programs in college football, it's only natural that they take the identity of, um, of their um, head coach. Yeah. Eric has a comment here. Rebooting. Maybe that's a better way. Not reloading, not rebuilding, rebooting, revamping. I don't know. We can do a lot of re's, but no, yeah, Eric, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great, you know, way to put it. Maybe that kind of sums up what we were trying to get at here. Um, but uh, another big point that uh, I kind of wanted to talk about, Dylan, how, how much time do you think you're good for? Like five more minutes or so? Yeah, I think I'm good for that. Okay, cool. This is a, a big, ooh, okay, I don't know. Maybe I'll go into one of these points after you hop out. But um, since we're talking about offense and defense and kind of maybe where Oregon's identity lies as they go through this reboot, as we're calling it on this episode, the concept of defense winning championships Let's dig into that a little bit more because it felt like in these past couple of years, you know, I think Alabama is one of the really good examples seeing that Saban is a defensive mind. Um, they really leaned into the sport changing and they went out there and, you know, realized, okay, we need elite players at every position. We'll go ahead and get quarterbacks that are very well capable of winning the Heisman Trophy and just put up ridiculous numbers and they're just going to say, Hey, we're going to outscore you. Just try to keep up with us. But then you get to this year and you have Georgia, which wins uh, its first national championship in, in quite some time. And they do it on the heels of a, a dominant defense, not so much a prolific quarterback in, in Stetson Bennett, but they did have, you know, he had some great games and performances and, you know, he, he deserves all the credit in the world. I think, you know, for just, all the criticism that he received, I think, for being a walk-on and when you play at a program like Georgia with all those aspirations and the tradition of excellence. But that's all leading up to this. You know, Keely Ringo has that pick six to end the game and really, you know, close the door, slam the door shut on Bama's hopes of winning that game. So where do you kind of feel like we're at in that conversation of, you know, defense winning championships? Do you think that still rings true? I think with Oregon, you'll probably see a little bit of um... – you know, I don't think one side is going to be that much more dominant than the other because I, I think, I mean, Georgia's defense was, you know, top two, top three in every category, top to bottom last year or this year. I guess it's last year now. Um, and I still feel like Oregon's offense will be hopefully um, a better product than than Georgia's was. But I, I think that now with the talent on this defense, there's a lot of youth and I wouldn't expect it to be an exact replica of what Dan Lanning and Kirby smart built in Athens. Sure. Just because there's a lot of youth. A lot of these guys have gone through a number of defensive coordinators in the last couple of years. That's going to be another thing. Like how do these guys, yeah. How do these guys adapt from going system to system to system? Cause you don't want to stray too far away from that, from what these guys are, are, you know, kind of used to, but at the same time, you want to utilize them better to their strengths, which I think, at times you never really saw with, with Tim DeRuiter and even Andy Avalos, um, you know, like 2018, 19, that defense was absolutely insane. And I feel like going back to something like that, I don't feel like that this roster is that different. Obviously Kayvon Thibodeau is a big difference. And, you know, Javon Holland was a all American esque safety, you know, NFL safety. Um, you know, there were a couple guys on there, Troy Dye. That's just, those guys are hard to kind of replicate, but I think there's a lot of talent all over this defense that's very versatile, very physical. We talked about size and speed. And I feel like a, a lot can be compared to that Georgia defense. There was massive size, massive speed, a lot more experience, though. I think that's where they, you know, definitely have the the ups on Oregon. 
But I think in a couple years, I think that Oregon defense, if they keep recruiting the way that they do, it's going to be, you know, I feel like it'll be as dominant if, of that 2019 defense, if not more dominant, just because Dan Lanning talks to the ploy. I feel like that duo right there is one of the best defensive duos in a coaching staff in college football. Like that's that gives me all the hope in the world. Yeah, the, the pieces are certainly there for, for Oregon to get back to being an elite defense. And I like what you were saying about um, having all those different coordinators because when Deruder was here last year, kind of wild to to think that he was only here for a season, right? Am I having a yeah. brain fart? He wasn't yeah. in 2020. It was still Avalos, right? Yep. Um, yeah. Wow. I don't know why I just thought <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, because he was talking about, you know, you want to simplify it. But and you don't want to overload these guys when you're installing a new defense. But here we are a year later, and the Oregon defense is going to have to, or the Oregon roster is going to have to go through another new a new defense, and obviously some changes and new terminology. Guys probably getting moved around. I think that's one of the things that I like the most about this Oregon roster, regardless of which side of the ball is the versatility that they have. Um, you know, we were, we've been talking a lot about Jeff Bossa and kind of where he maybe finds his home next year after spending it at linebacker. But there's still, you know, I think some coverage skills that are lacking from the linebacker unit. So maybe it makes sense for him to stay there. But yeah, I feel like with as far as defense winning championships, I, I think that how do you look at last year and, and not see that right when you're just having a, a dominant defense that can, you know, bow up and, and really keep you in games and, and ultimately make plays like Keith Ringo's pick six. Um, and I think that when you look at Oregon, I think their their offense was obviously very lacking last year, but I think there's definitely times where the defense did keep them in a lot of games. Um, I think about the UCLA game when when DJ James had that big interception, that was obviously really big. Um, you know, Ohio State they they won the turnover battle, the Ducks did, and, and that one. So I think that um, just you know having an elite defense really, really is a huge help because if you're keeping the other team off the board, then, you know, it's, it's less of a hole for your offense to have to kind of dig out of. And I think that last year's defense or offense, excuse me, as uh, you know, as good as they were at running the ball overall, it was pretty average. Yeah. And I think w one last point I wanted to, to kind of touch on before I, I head out here um, is I think there's something to be said about these Oregon teams that have been really successful and stability within the coaching staff and the roster because like 2001 um you know i believe that was Bellotti's seventh season you know jeff tedford had been there for a few years nick aliotti had been there for a few years 2011 chip kelly i think that was year two for him um and you know nick aliotti was there for like year 15 or whatever it was he was there forever um 2014 was a little less stability because helfrich was only in his second year as head coach but he had been there as an offensive coordinator scott frost was pretty new don pelham was pretty new but the roster was, you know, mostly returned. So I feel like having that stability is kind of what has led to Oregon teams being successful in the past. And with this much new, you know, the coaching staff and a lot of new pieces on the roster, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'd expect to to see a, an 11-12 win season right out of the gate. Um, I definitely think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And I think that the, the coordinators are – as, as good of a combo as, as Oregon's really had, my, my expectations are really, really high. I know a lot of Oregon fans' expectations are really high too. But, you know, I think it's going to kind of be a process just because a lot of these guys have been through, you know, multiple coordinators, multiple coaching staffs. Um, it's just it, – it's hard to succeed like that. 
Um, and it's not to, you know, that the fact that they're firing people. I mean, Cristobal left, Taggart left, um, Helfrich got fired, but nobody's left from that era. It's just people are leaving for other jobs left and right. That's the age of college football now. And you see guys that win championships. They've just got that stability figured out. So I feel like that's a big factor that maybe I was missing before. Stability is definitely a big part of the equation. And, and we'll continue to talk about uh, expectations for Oregon, you know, realistic expectations as we, we get closer to spring football and into the summer. And maybe you have a better idea of what the final 2022 signing class looks like with a couple guys still uh, kind of out there on the board. But uh, I'm going to get to some of these questions and comments. But Dylan, before they get out of here, or before you get out of here, excuse me, um, make sure you, you plug all your socials and, and where people can find more of you here. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at DRK Sports News. Um, it's not Dr. K Sports News, I promise you. I know it looks like it, and I've been called that a number of times, but it's DRK Sports News. Dylan Rubin King, in case nobody could figure that out. I didn't know <laughs> if you knew that, actually. <laughs> um, I don't think I did. Yeah, you didn't know that? Okay, well, now you know. That's why it's that. Um, yeah, you can find my work on Ducks Digest. I'm writing stuff for them um, pretty often. And you can also find my work on the transfer portal. Um, we're at T Portal CFB on Twitter. Awesome. Well, you guys got to make sure to lock in with Dylan. He's a he's a baller, and he does just about everything for us: graphics, writing, podcasts, and videos with me. Um, he's a rock star. So, uh, Dylan, we'll let you head out and get some food and get your weekend going a little bit. And I'm sure we'll have you back on here real soon. All right. Appreciate it, Max. All right. Take care, man. All right. And then there was one. Uh, so yeah, I'm probably going to go for like another 10 or 15 minutes. You guys want to, you know, get to some of these questions and comments uh, here in the chat um, and kind of, you know, pick your guys' brains and, and get some of our thoughts here. Uh, Andrew, uh, thanks for the comment. Andrew saw that Lebius Overton and his brother are coming to visit Eugene. Hope that Lanyon has his best sales pitch set. The thought of the Overton Bros and Connerly all rounding out the 2022 class is wild, without a doubt. I mean, o o both the Overtons are just massive individuals, and especially with with Lebius being a, a defensive lineman, I think that's a you know a, a guy that could really help Oregon. Just you need a game changer in the defensive line, and and I think that the Ducks have one, if not multiple. Uh, when you look at you know guys like Brandon Dorless, he's probably the biggest name on the defensive line returning from the Ducks last year. Uh, and then I think you also have Popo Amavai, uh, who was really, really solid for Oregon. And he got hurt a little bit towards the end of, the of last season. And Keon Ware Hudson, he's another guy to watch. And then uh, if, depending on if you consider him a defensive lineman or not, uh, you know, Edge, you look at Braden Swenson. And then Mace Funa is another veteran guy coming back. So um, I did see those reports as well that they're, they're going to be out here. Uh, at least Levius is uh, visiting, I believe, next month. So uh, definitely some huge names to, to watch here uh, as we, you know, get ready. It's, I mean, it's kind of weird. We're already almost halfway through February. So I think that the visits resume in March, if I'm not mistaken. So kind of getting ready for that to ramp up again. All right, Eric. Eric says, Landing is young and is embracing the culture. First Ducks coach to wear the sneakers. The youth movement is going to pay off big on the recruiting field and on the field, uh, maybe the recruiting trail and on the field is what Eric meant to say. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I like the most, I think, uh, about what Lanning and the rest of the staff really is doing. Um, I think that uh, just the way you put it here, Eric, is awesome. You know, Lanning is embracing the culture of Oregon. He's embracing Eugene. He's embracing the Tracktown USA aspect. He's embracing the Nike brand and the tradition that Oregon has built, even though they haven't won a tra uh, championship. 
uh, national championship that is i think there is still this very rich culture that uh, any coach can can really latch on to and and it makes it easier to sell the program right the program we are a program podcast so i have to make sure i catch myself there but yeah the the young staff i think is really going to pay off uh, on the recruiting trail and a lot of the guys that he's brought in have achieved at a high level on the field as well uh, on the gridiron you know where it really really counts I think the only, I don't even know if I'd call it a slight, but the only question mark that I would maybe have uh, about this staff is I don't believe there is a former head coach uh, on the staff, which I know is something that Mario really prided himself on and, and emphasized was getting former head coaches to come on. And I mean, you know, you see Nick Saban do that all the time, bringing in guys. He's brought in, I think, former head coaches that are analysts now, or, you know, they're coordinators, you know, I think when you bring a head coach in as a coordinator, it's probably really refreshing for the head coach, the former head coach that's now a coordinator to, to be able to just kind of take a step back, you know, slow down and breathe and just focus on one side of the ball because there's so many different aspects uh, of running a program now. You know, you have uh, obviously, you know, talent acquisition uh, and you have scouting, whether that be at the high school and now college level in the era of the transfer portal, roster management, NIL recruiting big board, recruiting visits, uh, meeting with family and, uh, just to hold, and then you have your own family. Yeah. Lenny has his own family, um, you know, to, to take care of as well. So the, you know, coaches work really feels like it's, it's never done. Let's see what we got here. Okay. Uh, chunky monkey. Thanks for your comment. Uh, you're a regular of the show here on, uh, at the ducks dish podcast. Chunky monkey says the brand is strong even here in the South. I could be biased, but Utah won the pack, attended the Rose Bowl and beat Oregon twice, but US, but Oregon and USC is the main focus. Without a doubt, that's what I was talking about with Dylan earlier. I feel like even though Oregon just got embarrassed in the Pac-12 championship and really towards the you know that back end of the season, I think that Oregon is still the premier brand and the premier team in the Pac-12, um, especially when you just look at how talented the roster is that Landon inherits and then uh, USC is always probably going to be a focus, just especially now that they have a huge name coaching them and then leading them in Lincoln Riley. And um, he's bringing in a bunch of talent into Southern California as well. So they're going to be a team to watch for sure. And it'd be really fun to see uh, Oregon and USC meet uh, in the Pac-12 championship next year since they don't play in the regular season. Mikey G says, it's funny how the popularity of college football and the rise of the Oregon brand seem to coincide. I think of the Joey Heisman billboard in New York City as the turning point for the program and around the time college football blew up nationally. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely a, a cool point. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about the culture of Oregon, seeing that they really seems in the tradition, it seems like it really took off in the mid to late 1990s. But um, I think that because Oregon, like you're saying, the Oregon brand and college football popularity are kind of coinciding, I feel like that's a big reason I think Oregon is one of the handful of teams in college football that's really, uh, really poised for success and just to, to, you know, deal with the adaptations that are required to, to be a top tier program and, you know, to push deeper on the recruiting trail and to ascend the rankings, whether it be in the AP poll, or the college football playoff rankings or in the recruiting rankings. So that's, a, that's a cool, a cool little note that I, I didn't really think about, but I, I like that you mentioned that Mikey. All right, let's see here. Um, Richard Wang says, most of Crystal Ball's offensive line recruits are very overrated. Panay Sewell, that's it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that they have brought he always had obviously ugh, got tongue twisted there. Um, I think that he obviously has brought in a lot of high level offensive linemen. Uh, you know, Jackson Powers Johnson was uh, one of his, you know, one of his guys that he recruited and, and he made an impact last year when he had to come in and, and play um, on the offensive line. And then we'll make, I'm excited to see what he does on the defensive line. Steven Jones, though, is another guy that, that Cristobal brought in. And, and I think that he's played really well. Um, you also look at uh, TJ Bass, uh, a Juco guy that, that came to Oregon. I think he's been playing pretty well uh, since he's been here. He's another big, big piece of the offensive line coming back uh, next year. So I, I like that uh, they have a lot of good pieces in place, obviously along the offensive line. Oh, this was another comment or sorry, another question from Mikey G that I wanted to get back to. Mikey said, speaking of quarterbacks with a supposed Nico projection, he got uh, projected up by one of the, uh, I believe it was on three, uh, got, uh, they projected him to go to Oregon um, to commit to Oregon. So, that's the projection that we're referencing here. Uh, how do you guys see that affecting our quarterback room next year if he were to commit? Yeah, I think that it, it would definitely just keep, you know, raising the level of competition if, if Nico were to be a duck. I feel like with DJU going to Clemson, it kind of feels like this is another opportunity for the Ducks to, to get another top tier Southern California quarterback uh, in the fold. I, I know that that visit went really, really well. And, and you know, the Ducks knocked it out of the park. Um but I don't think, I mean, affecting the quarterback room. So you would essentially have, uh, just looking at the roster now, you would have Bo Nix, Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield, and Nico, assuming that they all come back in 2023 because Bo Nix has two years of eligibility. Um, I think that, I don't know. I mean, I think ideally for Oregon, it feels like it would be for the health of the program. I think it would be better for Ty Thompson to start. Um, you know, that's a huge part of the conversation that we're going to have this entire offseason. But I feel like most people can agree on that, uh, that it's really, I don't want to say detrimental, but it doesn't seem like it's healthy for a program to constantly be bringing in transfer quarterbacks like Oregon kind of has um, and not just giving the reins to a young guy because that hasn't happened since Herbert was uh, a freshman, right, back in 2016 in that brutal 4-8 and eight season that I was talking about. And he only got brought in because the transfer that they brought in wasn't playing well with uh, Dakota Prukop in that um, that Washington game. That was just absolutely horrendous. We don't have to talk about that too much more. But I, I think for the future of the program, I think, you know, let's just talk about ideal scenario, in my opinion, is for, for Ty Thompson to start. And then, um, you know, you have Butterfield and, and Nico kind of battling for that number two spot. And then, you know, hopefully – Ty goes to the league after that. And then, you know, one of Butterfield or Nico is, you know, there to, you know, step up and uh, take the job when, when Thompson goes to the league and in an ideal world, right. This is projecting a lot. And, and I, and I, again, just want to reiterate that that's not meant to speak poorly or reflect poorly of any of the quarterbacks that they have on the roster. I just feel like for the health of the program, I think you want to be relying more so on high school prep level talent than, transfers from uh college football and, and from other teams let's see um brian says max you're doing beautiful work with this show and rube is a fantastic sidekick thank you for identifying unique and interesting topics for duck fans 
Brian, appreciate the kind words and, and thank you so much for being here on the show. I know this was a, a comment from a while ago, but hopefully you're still around. Um, it, I mean, yeah, these are just super, super fun. I, I love getting on here and, and getting to uh, have a platform. I'm very grateful to have a platform to, to talk about the Ducks um, and uh, interact with you guys and see where your head's at. And, and Rube's the man for sure. So thanks for the, the kind comment and, and we're glad to have you here on the channel. Uh, this was, we were talking about the defense or sorry, the offense, I think at this point, Mikey G, when we were talking about, um, kind of, I think this was the offense. Mikey G said, rebooted and installed windows 16. There will be bugs, but light years ahead of the old system. Um, yeah. Cause re rebooted, I think is kind of what Oregon's trying to do. Um, and, and, um, Eric said, that's a beautiful metaphor. So I think that where Oregon's at right now, it's, it's kind of a, it's like a combination of the old and the new, right? You bring in a new defensive mind like Lanning and then you have Dillingham, um, who's a younger guy that, that knows, at least it looks like on the surface that knows the, the right elements of the Oregon offense to hopefully dive back into, you know, the tempo, the excitement, the, the explosive plays. And I don't, th I think that Oregon just needs to, to lean more into the passing game, right? That might be the understatement of the century, but it's not like it's ever bad to have a good run game, but when that's all you have, which was definitely the case uh, multiple times last year for that Oregon offense, it's, it's not, you're not doing yourself any favors at all. Let's see. Eric had another question. Odds flow stays healthy. If he does and has a killer year, does he go to the draft or come back for what would really be his sophomore season on the field? Yeah, I think with Flo, you know, it's it's definitely been a tough deal with, uh, you know, the the injury luck that he's had. I, I kind of find it hard for for him to picture him going to the NFL after one season. Um, I think obviously if you're, you know, looking at it from Oregon's angle, I think that they've they're really confident in you know what he brings to the field and uh, brings to the table, and he's a tremendous player. But I, I mean, especially for for NFL scouts, I think you want to see more than just one season of production. Um, especially with the injuries that he's had, you know, they probably want to see that he can stay healthy and, and do it multiple years. So super excited to, to hopefully see Flo and uh, Sewell next to each other in that linebacker core. Okay. What else? Um, there's another comment that I wanted to get to. Uh, Mikey G said defense wins championships. No debate. It's at the heart of football. The ability to deny an offense mo movement requires both strength and wit. Not that office, offense isn't important, but you can get away with a stout defense and a mediocre offense, not the other way around. That's a great point. I think that was kind of what um, – it kind of felt like that's kind of what Oregon was going for last year, right? Seeing how the, the defense was so elite, it felt like, at the beginning of the year – maybe not so much from a statistical standpoint, right? You know, there were definitely down games, but with the way they were turning, forcing turnovers, I think that was huge. Um, we never really saw them take that next step in pressuring the quarterback, which is definitely a concerning aspect of the 2022 team for me as it stands, seeing that you had a talent like Kayvon Thibodeau, but obviously he was hurt and, you know, probably didn't have the season that he wanted to. Um, but there's definitely a need for, for uh, you know, another edge rusher another pass rusher whether i think that's another thing too like we we i think for me i've been talking about getting a guy who can rush the passer and i for so long i keep thinking about some like just the edge rusher position or the edge defender position but 
if you can get a guy, I mean, look at Aaron Donald. That's probably not the most likely example, but that's a dude who can rush the passer from the interior. And um, that's one of the reasons I'm so intrigued about Brandon Dorless is because he kind of had, he played a lot of the 2020 season on the interior and then he got moved around a little bit in uh, 2021. Got to plug my laptop in here. Don't want the stream to die on me. All right, what do we? What else do we have? So yeah, no, Mikey, great point. I feel like that this is definitely why I wanted to pose that question. You know, do you feel like defense still wins championships? Does that still stand? And uh, I think you know, seeing Georgia um, again, not to slight Stetson Bennett, but I think he's he didn't really align with the traditionally elite quarterback play that we've seen. Uh, from these national champions in, in the past couple of years. All right. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Also, this is a, a great big picture uh, recruiting uh, comment from Andrew. Also, it seems like more and more five stars are openly embracing Oregon now. Connerly and Overton seem like real possibilities. Amazing that Lanning has this, has that kind of pull so quick. Love it. Um, yeah, this is definitely a, a good sign for Oregon. And, and it's something that you see even in like these top school lists, right? I think we've been seeing that for years, even under Cristobal for the longest time, it felt like Oregon was the only school out West that was included on a lot of these kids, top, you know, fives, top tens, I feel like I can't really start taking a, a top school list seriously unless it's to like the five or six area, because then you look at how many, like what officials are they going to take? What schools get official visits? Cause they only get five. Um, I, I think that is, is pretty big, but yeah, I feel like just because of the way Oregon has built itself over the last five or so years, um, you know, really more so under Cristobal, um, they have built themselves into a Pac-12 title contender, you know, on a yearly basis, um, if not being the favorite in a lot of these preseason media polls, right? They're a recruiting powerhouse. So they've proven that they can, that not only do elite players want to come there, but the coaches can capitalize and ultimately get that signature, get them on campus. And then with the NFL draft, with guys like uh, Panay Sewell and Kayvon Thibodeau, um, Mikel Wright, who's going to get drafted this year, like, they show that they can really do the entire thing, identify talent, recruit it, develop it, and then get them off to the next level. So I think that's a huge part. And that's definitely a big reason, Andrew, I think to your point, why, uh, why a lot of these high profile recruits are uh, openly embracing Oregon. So I, I, yeah, it's, it's another reason why I think that Lanning is in a great spot to just pick up right where crystal ball left off. And, and he's put himself in an awesome um, position to do that with, um, with the staff that he's, de- the staff that he's built and the recruiters that he has, uh, surrounded himself with. All right, guys, that is, I think going to do it for this episode of the Ducks Just podcast. I'm heading out to Corvallis in a couple hours to, uh, cover the Oregon women's basketball team. So I'll be going to that game with, uh, our photographer, Scott Bolt, so make sure that you guys stay tuned into Ducks Digest to catch our coverage of the women's basketball game. Um, but uh, before I get out of here, just want to give everyone a huge thank you for uh, tuning in to this episode of the show. Got a lot of awesome comments and questions. So getting to interact with you guys, pretty good, uh, pretty good turnout. Uh, if you guys want to find more of me, 
You can find me on Twitter at mtorissports. Um, just ask a, a, a small favor of you guys. Go ahead and share the show. Um, I think this might be like the 70th episode of the Ducks Dish podcast. So we're really, you know, picking up steam, it feels like. And, and I want to get this show and uh, get them get the show in front of more Duck fans, whether it be here on YouTube, on my channel, or on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, I think that it'd be it'd be awesome if you guys could just do us a favor and, and share the, the show and the channel and the podcast with, with other Duck fans and, and spread the word. But that's all I have for this one, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Ducks Dish podcast. Everybody have an awesome weekend. Uh, I'll make sure to tweet out when the next live show is. But appreciate everybody for stopping by. Hope everyone has a good weekend, and we will see you in the next one. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.